You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, good evening, church. Right on, right on. Glad you guys are here. So we are continuing our series. We're continuing our study of 1 John called Simple Truths. Uh, We've been here for a number of months um, you know, and the things, as we say all the time, the things that John writes are things that we've heard before, uh, but the things that we're quick to forget, uh, and they are very sweet, simple truths for us that, that we would do well to remember that, indeed, we must remember. Uh, so first, let me say this. We are, as I said this in December, we are super stoked to have the kids here with us this evening. Um, you know, ha- having the, the kids with us through the entire service once a month is something that we're still experimenting with. Uh, we think it's going to be beneficial for the whole church that the kids can, uh, over time, learn you know how to conduct themselves uh, throughout an entire worship service without being dismissed. It'll be beneficial for them uh, so that whenever they, they're 10 or 11 years old, that it's not just like a complete hard turn left for them and they have no idea what's going on and how to sit still long enough during a sermon and all that stuff. So this will be good for them, uh, good for the church to come together and worship all together, even with the children. Um, but like I said last time, again, so I'm just repeating a lot of the stuff that I said in December whenever we had the children up here with us. Um, I know that there are going to be some unnecessary movement and uh, necessary or unnecessary bathroom breaks. I don't know. I'm going to let you decide that, parents. Uh, there, there may be taking your kids out to be disciplined like my mom used to do to me. Um, remember those trips to the bathroom, mom? They were good times. Anyone else, parents ever take you to the bathroom and whip you during church? That's what I'm talking about, right? And... <laughs> Thank you, Mom. I appreciate it, because I would be in prison if you didn't discipline me. Thank you. Um, and that's okay, right? Uh, but most of the time, let me say this. Uh, for all that stuff, like the unnecessary movement and stuff, parents, that's cool. Um, most of the times, in my experience, uh, parents are, or my observing parents, rather, I don't have any children. But most of the time, parents are distracted during the service, worrying that their child is being disruptive, and the people around them aren't really distracted much at all by the kids, Right? So just keep that in mind. Uh, most often the people around you don't mind or think twice about the things that you're worried about as a parent. Uh, so chill out. Right? It's going to be good. It's going to be fine. Uh, but again, addressing the parents still uh, that are here with your kids. Uh, I also recognize that the vast majority of my preaching is going to go over your kids' heads. Right? And that's okay. Um, so the responsibility is on you. Right, parents, the responsibility is on you to talk with your children after the service and go over some of what was taught this evening. Right, so I'd recommend you on the drive home or whenever you get home or whatever or throughout the week, ask them what they learned. Right, ask them how what was taught uh, could be applied to their little lives. Uh, or pick one really simple point that was made throughout this sermon and talk about that with them if they can't remember much of what was taught. Uh, but it, it's simple, right? Just sit down and talk with your kids about what we all learned this evening. Uh, it's not impossible, parents. You can do this because all people, regardless of what age they are, can benefit from the public preaching of the Word of God. Right? So I just want to encourage the parents in that uh, this evening. You can do this, and everything is going to be okay. Uh, but this evening, we are uh, going to be continuing through John's discussion of the love of God and how that leads us to love one another. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. Verses 9 through 12, and I don't know if how, how reliable our projector is, so use those Bibles in the pews or your own if you brought one. First John 4, 9 through 12. And in this text, uh, John is going to highlight for us the heights of the love of God that is revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus. Right? That's, that's John's focus 
in this passage that we're going to be in. And there are principles in John's explanation of the gospel that in turn show us how we are to love one another. Right? And since love for our fellow believer is to be the greatest distinguishing mark of the Christian, this is something that we ought to take deadly seriously. Right? So I pray that though these are things you've heard time and again, uh, some of this is review from last week, please pay attention. This is so important that we, we rightly love one another. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. Right? So please hear this. It's a little roadmap of where we're going this evening. First, we're going to see the great love of God towards us in sending His only Son to die to save sinners. And then we're going to be reminded that it was God who loved us first when we were yet dead in our sin and hated Him. That He loved us first. And then in light of that, we're going to discover our motivation for loving one another. And how we are to actually keep that command. Your application is actually going to come uh, three quarters of the way through this uh, sermon. It's going to be in a weird spot. But then finally, we're going to see the astonishing effects of loving one another like God loves us. So with that being said, by way of introduction, we are in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that your Holy Spirit inspired John to write. God, I pray you'd give us a fresh set of eyes for this text this evening. That you would soften our hearts that we might receive the word of God. That the old gospel truths would resonate with us in a way that they have not in a long time. Lord, let us see the gospel as beautiful and precious this evening as we did the first time that we ever believed, the first time that we ever heard and repented. And Lord, let us see it, that we might understand your love for us on a greater level and that we might love one another properly. Help us to apply this to our lives, Lord. Please do a work of sovereign grace here this evening. If there are any unbelievers here, please woo them to faith in Christ. Let them see your great love for them. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so kicking back to last week uh, a little bit. In verse 8 of of this chapter, chapter 4, verse 8, we saw that very famous phrase that God is love. And we talked about what that doesn't mean and what that does mean and that we don't, uh, love is not God, but yet God is so, love is such an integral characteristic and, and so essential to the nature of God that you can say God is love and that all He does is loving. And here... In verses 9 through 12, especially verses 9 and 10, John begins to expound on that truth that God is love. And he highlights, and in all, there there are many ways that God is, that God is love. And we talked about them last week, but here in verses 9 and 10, John really lays down what's on his heart as he writes this, as he's inspired by the Spirit. So verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
Right? So God in this passage is a reference to God the Father specifically. Right? The first person of the Trinity. Right? So sometimes we think of God the Father as kind of mean. Right? And that Jesus is the nice one who saves us. Uh, but that's not the case. Of course, Jesus is the one who saves us. Right? But we ought not pit the love of the, fa- or the, the, love of the Son against the Father. Okay, because here John is primarily concerned with the love of the Father. I think that's something that, that we do. It it's actually uh, reminds us of a really old heresy uh, called Marcionism. You should look it up. It's awful. It says the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different, and that the God of the Old Testament is inferior. We don't believe that nonsense. Right? We're Trinitarians, same God always. Don't forget it. Um, right? So he's talking about the Father and the love of the Father in this passage. Um, so he says, the love of the Father, the love of God was made manifest among us. Right, Made manifest means it was revealed among us in a concrete way. Right? So just let, me, let me remind you of this. The Father's love is not an abstract concept. Okay? The love of God is not an abstract thing. It's not an ethereal thing. It had action with it. Right? Love is an action. We talk, we've talked about this many times. So God expressed His love in space and time. Right? In human history by sending His Son into the world. The love of God is a very tangible thing and it was revealed among us. It was made manifest among us in God sending Christ, the God-man, God made flesh into the world. And John says God sent His only Son into the world. The King James Version says only begotten Son. Right? You guys remember that? Only begotten Son. Now that word begotten, all right, that, that our, our translation just says His only Son. Or the NIV actually hits the nail on the head, I think. It says that His one and only Son. All right, that word begotten does not imply that Jesus was created by the Father. That's not what it's saying. Rather, that, that word that, we, that the King James says, begotten, that one and only Son, expresses the unique quality of the Son. The word's monogenes, I think is how you say it in Greek. But that word expresses the unique quality of the Son. So let me highlight this. The only one. There is no other son like this. We may call ourselves sons of God because we're Christians, because we've come to faith in Jesus, but this is unique. This is a unique relationship that the Father has with the Son. That's what John is stressing to us. It's a special relationship between God the Father and God the Son, a special kind of love that the Father only has for the Son. There is only one Son of God. Just think about this. He has always been at the Father's side. Right? He's always been before the face of God in His immediate presence. To say this another way, Jesus is the beloved of the Father. Right? Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 1. We, we've been blessed in the beloved, capital B. Jesus is the beloved of the Father. So hear me on this. What John is highlighting here is that the Father loves the Son more than anyone or anything in the universe. This is the intense love that the Father has for His only Son. He loves Him more than anything else in all of creation. not saying that Christ was created, but you get what I'm saying. There's nothing else that the Father loves more than the Son. The Son is the most valuable, cherished, prized, adored being of the Father. The most cherished, valuable thing to God the Father. And John says the Father sent this one sent His only Son into the world. Sent Him out of His immediate presence and into a world of dead men. What kind of love is this? 
The Father loves the Son more than anything else in the universe. And He sends Him into a world of sinners. Who among us would give their most beloved thing to their enemy? Your most prized possession, who would give it to someone that hates them? Who among us would send their physical earthly children into a cruel country where they would be hated and killed? Who among us would do that? This is the heart of our Father. He sent His Son. In a sense, you could say that He gave up His Son. He gave Him up for dead men. This is self-giving love. The Father gives the most beloved, valued thing for the good of another, for our sakes. And I keep referring to the, the dead men in the world because it's just so we might live through Him. Into a world of dead men that they might live. Why would God love this way? Well, verse 8 that we looked at last week tells us, because first, because God is love. This is astounding. This is the character of our God. That He would look upon a world of spiritually dead sinners and have mercy upon them. It's as if in sending His Son into the world, the Father says, I would have you live. I would have you live. I don't care what the cost is. I will pay it. I want to see you live and I want to see you alive with me forever. The Father had compassion on us. And please hear me on this. He had compassion on us out of His good pleasure. Out of His good pleasure. Out of His sovereign will is the only reason. There was nothing in us that He might be this loving towards us. The object of His affection was less than nothing. We are sinners. But does this not show you the nature of our God? He sends His most beloved thing into that kind of a world. And the second reason... That God would love us this way. The text tells us in verse 9, God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That we might live through that Son that He has sent. So that we could have eternal life. So that we would be spared the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. God sent Jesus so that we would be saved through His life, death, and resurrection. Him fulfilling the law in our place as we read in the Confession. Fulfilling the law in our place. Satisfying the wrath of God fully in our place and rising from the dead so that we might have eternal life as well. And that we would be saved through Him by faith. Faith is the means by which we receive this eternal life. Turning to Christ and trusting that He has made us right with God. So again, as I said earlier, I want to make a note that that phrase that we might live through Him tells us that apart from this act of God, all would remain dead in their sins. There's no hope for us outside of this love of God. How magnanimous is our God? How merciful is our God? We have no hope apart from Him taking this action and we don't deserve Him to take this action upon us because we're sinners and yet He does it anyway. Truly, God is love. But I, I, I want to draw this. I think that that word live in this verse has a bit of a double meaning. Okay? So primarily, 
it means that we might have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world so that we would come out from under God's wrath and be reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. For certain. That's primarily and, and most strongly, I believe, what that means. That we would live. That we would have salvation through Him. But as a result of that, secondarily, I think John's saying that Christ came into the world that we might truly begin to live now. That we might truly live now. I think John would define living as loving as God demands and deserves. All right, and I'll tell you where I draw that from. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Right? So... I think John is saying that as we go from death and into life, spiritual death and into eternal life, we then begin to love one another. So in this life, Christ came that we might begin to live true life, which is rightly loving other people. This is the result of the eternal life that we have received. So not just that we would live eternally, but that we would begin to live right now, and living right now truly means to love. Just a note on that then. In in light of that, if if that's what life is to John in an earthly sense, is that we would love as God has demanded that we love one another, and that's true life, then that tells us that if you are living a selfish, ungiving, unforgiving, cold-hearted, self-centered, me-focused kind of life, then you're not really living. You are a shell of a man. You are living a shadow of of true life. If you're living for yourself and for your own desires and what you want to do, you are but a ghost in the world. There's so much more for you to have. But true life in Christ looks like loving others and giving of yourself for their good as you seek to honor God. God sent His Son into the world that we might live. So verse 9 tells us the revelation of God's love. It's made manifest among us. It's revealed to us. And then verse 10 goes on to tell us the essence of God's love. To me, this is the big punch of, of his explanation of the gospel. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. This is True love is what he means. And this is love. This is the definition. This is what real true love looks like. John is getting ready to define it. And he says it has its origin and definition in God. Because it's not starting with us, it's starting with God. He says, not that we have loved God. I believe everyone in this room would agree that we do not love God the way that He deserves or demands. Not that we have loved God. No one loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. No one does that. Not for one second of one day of your entire life have you ever loved God with every fiber of your being. Your sinful nature is still mixed in with you. None have ever loved God the way that we ought to. All sin in this regard for certain. But the Christian does indeed love God. Right? You're going to see where I'm going with this in a minute. The Christian does indeed love God, though we don't love Him the way that we should. So I think that John, because he's saying, not that we have loved God, that you don't love God. I think John is talking about our state before we were converted. 
Okay, so he's not saying that, that Christians don't love God. That, that's an oxymoron. That doesn't make sense. So he's talking about our life before we converted. So for this next bit that we're going to be in, let me say this because, again, we've I, I, we got a bit of a mixed congregation. I don't know everyone that's here. If you're here and you're a Christian, you've repented of your sins, you've trusted in Christ's life, death, and resurrection to make you right with God, and you're following him daily in faith and repentance, I want you to go back in your mind. If that's you, you're a Christian, I want you to go back into your mind to who you were before God called you out of the darkness and into the kingdom of his son. I want you to go back to your unconverted state in your mind. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you're just a nominal believer, you think it's true, but you don't really follow Christ, I'm talking about you as you are presently. He says, not that we have loved God. We hated him. Please, please understand that. Don't deny that. You wouldn't ever say that probably, but you evidenced it with your life prior to your conversion. You're evidencing it right now if you're not a Christian. That we have hated Him. And we've evidenced it in our way of life by walking in our sins. By our constant, chronic disobedience to God. Enjoying our sins of fornication and viewing pornography and drunkenness and practicing homosexuality and our lying and deceiving people in our greed and our selfishness and the like. Walking in our sins. We've evidenced that we are a vile, rebellious, proud people who essentially spit in the face of God daily. We were blasphemers. We were insolent, atheistic people consumed with vanity. Not giving a second thought to God. Unbending haters of God. Corrupt, depraved people. Worshipping anything but the living God. As Paul says in Romans 1, we are exchanging the glory of God for a lie. Making God's out of everything we see, suppressing the truth in our own unrighteousness, making gods out of money and sex and relationships and family and status and popularity and the opinions of men and our careers and what we can get in life. We lived to please ourselves and satisfy every wicked desire of our hearts. And in doing so, hear me on this, and in doing so, in living this life of hatred towards God, we merited nothing except the reward of eternal damnation. We merited nothing but damnation. There was nothing in us that God should love us. And everything in us that God should hate us. Nothing in us that He should love us. Everything that He ought to hate us. But this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. This is astounding. He should not love such people as this, but He does. Out of His good, sovereign pleasure, God takes pity on us, and He loves us. And He sends His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To go to a Roman cross and there satisfy the wrath of God that was on us for our sins. 
This is the love of God. In love, God looked upon us and said, I will give my one and only Son to bear the punishment for your sins and take them away from you, my enemies. And we were reconciled to God in that act. We received the work of Christ by faith and were reconciled to God. And former enemies were made into sons by faith in the only begotten Son of God. All because God loves us. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? This is matchless love. This is love untold. This is beyond our full comprehension. Like we sing in the hymn, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. What kind of love is this? The greatness of God's love is displayed in the costliness of the sacrifice for the holy undeserving. This is the love of God. John then goes on to tell us the proper response to this love. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John now gives us the proper motivation to obey the command to love we reread in verse 7 last week. Beloved, let us love one another, is what he said. This is the proper motivation. This is John's love principle that he's had all throughout this letter. And that principle is this. Those who have been loved, in return, love others. Right, but he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? And that if there is obviously an if that has been fulfilled. So you can say, Beloved, since God has loved us in this way, since God has loved us so much, we also ought to love Right, so that ought is, is, is a moral constraint, right? We must love one another after receiving this kind of love. But I was reading one commentator, and he said something I thought was profound. He says, this must, we ought to, this must, I, I, I ought, come, does not come from mere external pressure. This is not an external ought, Right? This is not just an external command. That in John's mind, this ought, this must, flows from the fact that we have been inexpressibly loved by God in Christ. That commentator called it the must of internal constraint. Right? Which means that there's something in you. I have to love others. I can't help it. Like, I don't need anyone actually to tell me this. Like, I, just, I can't help it. It's like I'll burst if I don't love other people. It's a, it's a constraint. It's an inward constraint. We now cannot help but to love one another. Since God has loved us so. And this is not just because we see the beauty of the gospel that causes us to weep. Right? It's not just because we've seen the beauty of the gospel, but because we've actually been converted by that gospel. That's why that inward constraint of love comes in. As John's referenced many times in this letter, we have been born of God. We have been born again. And this is what has happened. We're going to reference something that Paul says. This is what happens when we're converted. Romans 5.5 5. 
He says, and hope does not put us to shame because, and here's what I want you to see, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is what happened whenever you were converted by that beautiful gospel that John has just expounded upon. The love of God has been poured into our hearts, Christian. It's in you. This is where that ought comes from. It comes from within us because God has placed it in us that we would love this way. But how are we to love one another? Right? That's always the question, right? Like every Christian would agree. Again, without us even being told, really, we ought to love one another. I've been so loved by God, I must do this. Again, we have this internal constraint. But how? Biblically, how am I supposed to love my fellow believer? That's the context. We're supposed to love all people, but in this immediate context, it's loving your fellow Christian. That's always the question. How am I supposed to do this? So I want to draw three things from our text so far that will guide us in how we love one another. Right? So again, this is your application. So this is in kind of a weird spot because we ain't done yet. Right? But here's your application. So how are we supposed to love one another in light of the great love with which God has loved us? Verse 9 highlights... This is one. I got three. One. Verse 9 highlights how God sent His only Son. Right? The unique one. The only one one in the universe. And how God gave Him up for our sakes. This tells us that the love that John is commanding, the love that, that, that is in us, that, that we ought to express, is a self-giving love. And I know we talked about it last week. I get that. I'm beating a dead horse, but it bears repeating because none of us are loving in a self-giving way, 10 for 10, every day of the week, right? So we, we need to keep hearing the same stuff. But this is a self-giving love. Our love is to be the kind that has no reserve. That's a challenge. It has no cutoff point. It is willing to give up whatever is necessary. It is willing to lay aside our preferences and give of ourselves so that others can benefit. The love that we're supposed to show one another is not stingy. It's not selfish. It's not self-serving. It's not demanding our own way. It's self-giving. That's incredibly open-ended, right? So there's a principle for you. It's self-giving. But we want the list. Right? Anyone else? You like me? Like a little legalist? Give me the list. I'll do everything on the list. I'll check all the boxes. I promise. I'm not going to give you a list. I could have. It wouldn't have been sufficient. Right? Because this is open-ended for a reason. The love of God is self-giving. There's a principle that we ought to love by, and it's open-ended for a reason. And that reason is every situation will require us to give of ourselves in a different way. If God gave us a list, we'd find ways around the list. We're sinners. But it's going to require us to be giving of ourselves in a different way each time, to lay something else down. Maybe even take something up for the good of another. When I say take something up, I mean take up something that makes you uncomfortable, like rebuking your fellow Christian. That's a way we can love one another. You've got to take something up there. That's awful. You ready to do that? That's not fun. Right? But that's self-giving. We're giving of our own preferences. So I'll say let the Holy Spirit convict you on this. And I would recommend you dwell on some of these questions in in, in reference to self-giving love. How might I give of myself to my spouse? How might I give of myself more to my children or my coworkers or the people in my small group? How might I give more of myself to my friends, 
to my fellow members of this church. If you're a member of this church, uh, you've entered into a covenant with the other members here. How might I love them? How might I be self-giving towards them? So I'll let the Holy Spirit convict you on those things. How might I give of myself more to the people I'm in contact with? Second principle we get from these first two verses on how we're supposed to love one another is in verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that God loved us long before we loved Him. Right? In fact, if you want to kick the can all the way back, Paul tells us at length that God predestined us for salvation before we were born. That He marked us with His love before time began. Right? So God loved us long, long before we loved Him. Right? So this tells me that the love that we are to display, since God loved us first, the love we are to display is a love that takes initiative. It's a love that takes initiative. God did not sit back and wait for us to love Him before He loved us. And you better thank God for that or no one would be saved. If God waited for us to love Him, we hated Him. As what Paul says in Romans 8, there was no love in us. We were dead in our sins and transgressions. Dead men can't love. We can't do anything towards God that's pleasing to Him, especially exercise faith in Him and affection towards Him. He had to love us first. So again, this is the love that takes initiative. So in our love for one another, hear me on this please, we cannot sit back and wait for someone to come to us. We cannot sit back and wait for someone to come to us and to show some affection towards us or to do some good for us. And then we might reciprocate. That's not how this works. Honestly, if that's kind of your mindset, if you're one of the people that says, you know, like, I would serve more people around me, or I would, I would do this good for this person if they would just come to me first. That actually smacks of selfishness. This is pretty selfish. I'll show it to them if they show it to me first. That's not, that's not how this works. Instead of that, we should be people who are always keeping an eye out for ways to get involved with one another. Right? Whether that be family or friends or people that you're not yet tight with in this church. Right? Like we should have like this mentality that says, oh man, I'm about to love this brother or love this sister, and they don't even know what's coming. Right? They have no idea. Right? I'm going to take the initiative. They don't even know me yet, and I'm about to do some good for them. Right? That should be the kind of initiative that we take. So let me implore you to extend yourselves to others, especially those you don't know in the church. Seriously, we were strangers to God. And yet by the blood of Christ, He brought us near. All right, so seek to do those around you some spiritual good. All right, that's, that's how we love one another. Sit down, read the scriptures with somebody. Take the initiative to pray with somebody. Talk with them. How you doing? Counsel them. Disciple them. Take some initiative to do someone some spiritual good. Or tangible good if they need physical help. Anyway, third point. Verse 10 also shows us that God certainly has chosen to love the unlovable. God has certainly loved the undeserving. He has loved us. No one is deserving of God's love. And please don't, don't listen to that junk you hear like on Facebook stuff like Todd White. That dude's a hack, right? He's like, God has shown me my worth on the cross. No, he hasn't. He's shown you what a wretch you are that took the death of his son to save you, right? God has loved the unlovable, the unworthy. The undeserving. So let that serve as a reminder to us that we are, we are to extend love to all of the body of Christ. Seriously, I know I hit this last week. 
this, this is hard. We are not to separate people into groups of worthy and unworthy of our love. It does not work that way. That would be the antithesis of how God loves His church. That is anti-gospel. That's the opposite of how God has loved His people. All are unworthy. All are unworthy of God's love. And yet God has loved anyway. Alright, so let me encourage you with this. If you're in relationship with people around you, as you should be, let that thought that God has loved the unworthy push you to greater patience. Let that push you to greater forgiveness, greater compassion, greater love toward those who are frustrating and seem to wear you down and who annoy the guts out of you because that happens. And it's okay to say that. I hope. But God has showered you with love when you were at your worst, so show that to others. Right? So there's your application. So let's get back into the text. So John has explained the love of God towards us and showed us our motivation to love one another. All right, that's what we've seen so far. This is the love of God. Here is the gospel. This is why you ought to love one another. Here's a couple of principles for how to love one another. And now in verse 12, and this is why I did everything a little bit out of order, he goes on to tell us the effects, the effects of loving one another like we should. And it is astounding what John says the effects of our love is. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John starts off something in verse 12. He starts off with something that doesn't seem to connect at first. He says, no one has ever seen God. Whenever I first read 1 John and I got to this part, I was like, that was a hard left, John. I don't know why you, why you start with that, man. Could have went on to something else. But he says, no one has ever seen God. And this reminds us of some things that Jesus said. Right? Jesus in, in John 4.24 says, God is spirit. Whenever he's talking to the woman at the well. God is spirit. It's one of the four God is statements. God is light, God is love, God is spirit, and our God is an all-consuming fire. But God is spirit, which is to say God is not human. God is above creation. He is transcendent. He is the invisible God, as Paul calls him uh, in his sermon in Acts. But I think what John is doing, so again, like that's a good true theological point, but what I think John is doing in saying no one has ever seen God, I think he's calling back to the gospel that he wrote. Right, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So the only God who is at the Father's side is a reference to Jesus. Right? John's incredibly Trinitarian in that epilogue to his gospel. He says, no one has seen God, but God the Son has made the Father known. I think that's what he's alluding to whenever he says no one has ever seen God. Right? So Jesus coming into the world... This will all pan out in a minute. Just give me a second. Jesus' coming into the world was, in part, to reveal more of who God is. Right? To, to be the full revelation of who God is. To show us His attributes clearly, more clearly than, than when He saw under the Old Covenant. His character, what He is like. Right? Jesus came to fully disclose, 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 <laughs> disclose the nature of God. i got a Mike Tyson lisp. That was funny. But Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, 
you've seen the Father, right? John 14, 9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The author of Hebrews says this in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? So he's an exact imprint of God. If you've seen him, you've seen God. That was part of why he came into the world. But now, this side of the cross, this side of really the ascension of Christ, Christ has obviously ascended to heaven. He is no longer present to be a visible representation of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God. But then John says, if we love one another, God abides in us. So, though no man has ever seen God, when we love one another the way that God has loved us, we image who God is to one another. That's what John's saying. No one's ever seen God. Christ, the visible representation of the invisible God, has ascended into heaven. This is now our responsibility to image forth who God is to one another. We become His visible representatives on earth. And I know that that's kind of cliche. Like, become a cliche, right? Like, you can show God to people, right? And I know that sounds corny. But, like, consider how weighty that that is. If we love one another rightly, we image who God is to one another. What a privilege God has invited us into. What a privilege that is. When we love one another rightly, we actually are representing the nature and heart of God to each other. We ought to take this seriously. We ought to to be overjoyed that God would invite us into such a holy duty. His former enemies get to represent God. What a thought that that is. We should be diligent in this. We should strive to make for certain, hear me, that we are imaging God rightly to one another in how we love. This is huge. This is weighty. This is not something to take lightly. This is a holy duty that God has given to us. But then finally, John says, if we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. Right? And that's not to say that God's love is deficient or that it's lacking anything, but rather the word translated here, perfected, in the Greek means to be made complete or brought to its fullest expression or to have its full effect. Right, so when we love, God's love has accomplished His goal. When we love one another, the love of God has come to its full expression in us. One commentator said that uh, it's like completing a circuit when we love. Right, everything is finally brought full circle. That in our earthly lives, God's plan for us is brought to its full expression. So we reflect Him. We've been loved so we could love. Again, what a privilege we have. And just consider this for a moment. It's something that smacked me when I was writing this on Friday. To do our human responsibility to see the plan of God fulfilled is a weighty responsibility. I'm not denying the sovereignty of God, but He has placed a human responsibility on us that that His love would be fully expressed in us as we love. We dare not be lazy in this duty to see God's love come to fruition in our lives. This is an awesome responsibility that God has given to us. Let's wrap this up. Kids, you've been fantastic. Let's wrap this up. God has loved the unlovable in the greatest way imaginable. By giving His only Son to die in order to accomplish the salvation of all who would believe. And He did this because He is love. 
in light of all that we have seen, the great love of God towards us, the example that God has given to us, the privileges and duties laid before us, the responsibility we have to display the love of God. In light of all that, I see no way that we can put off loving one another. I see no way. There is no excuse, no reason that could be sufficient to negate this commandment. Everything we could say in objection to the call to love each other pales in comparison to the love God has given to us. We cannot put this off. We must begin to love one another. So look to the cross and see the God-man hanged on the tree in place of sinners, satisfying God's wrath for them in their place. Behold the unfathomable gift of the Father, and His self-giving love and kindness towards you, and repent. Repent. All of us can be repentant on this. Repent of your cold-heartedness. Repent of your selfishness, for your lack of patience, for your lack of love, for your not taking the initiative and waiting for someone to come serve you. Repent. And look to Christ, who has kept the law in your place and reconciles you to God. Trust Him. And then seek to leave here this evening and love one another. We'll end by reading part of our passage again. 1 John 4, 7-11 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great love that you have showed us in Christ. For being patient and kind with us, though we don't deserve it. Though we weren't asking for a Savior, though we didn't even understand that we needed one because we were so dead and blind in our sin, you gave us one anyway in Jesus. We have a debt towards you that we could never repay. God, you saved us out of your own sovereign pleasure. Not that there was anything in us that would be lovable, but because you are the embodiment of love, you did this for us. Press that on our hearts that we might love one another. Grant to us that we would take the initiative in loving people. Grant us hearts of patience. God, take away our prejudices that we might love all in our midst. Lord, help us to be self-sacrificial and self-giving in so many different ways. Father, what we're asking is that you would make us like your son, that that you would form us, that we might display the invisible God Help us to image you rightly, to show you rightly to one another. 
and help us to love you more. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.